Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. I believe that's the end of the chapter. Mm, yes. Yes. And we will look at that in just a moment. So I've got, uh, uh, we're going to pray first, and then uh, I've got some, some things that we'll talk about, and then we'll, uh, we'll read the passage in, in just a moment. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit would descend upon us and open our eyes. Give us an understanding of what this passage means, of how we are to apply it in our lives today, so that you might be glorified, so that the things of Christ would be made real in our lives, and that we would be your instruments in the building of the kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when we study God's word, we have to realize that what we need to know and understand and what it says, both from its context, that is its meaning, and, and our context, which is its application. Now, sometimes we scratch our head when we read certain passages, and we're just not sure what's going on in the, in the midst of them. We wonder, well, okay, well, that must have been important two or three or four thousand years ago, but what does this mean in, in my life today? And I always go back to the one that says, you know, if your kids are bad, take them to the elders and let them be stoned at the city gates. Okay, so what should we do with things like that? But we do have to let the passage speak to us and never make the word of God say what we want it to say. Now, there's a difference between exegesis, which is exo out of, and isogesis, which is iso into. We have, to let the, we have to do exegesis. The passage has to come out and speak to us. I can't say, I've got an agenda, and now I'm going to read that into the passage. Even though this is 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years old, it is God's Word. It is inspired. And when the Holy Spirit works in our lives, He gives us this understanding so that we can live it out today. Now, perhaps there are some passages that, that you don't like and, and you just stopped reading them, okay? You said, well, Lord, I, I'm just not going to read that anymore because I don't like it, okay? Mm, or maybe, not that I would do this, maybe you've come across a preacher who just doesn't preach on certain things because they're too hard, okay? Nobody likes hearing those things. I don't like preaching on them. Uh, I don't like to have to explain them. So we just go on to the easy things, right? Uh. It's the entire word of God is good for us. It is the entire word of God. Understand, when somebody hits me, I don't like to do what? Turn the other cheek. When somebody hits me, what do I want to do? Hit him back. I want to hit him back, if I can. If somebody asks for my shirt, Scripture says I should do what? Give my cloak as well. Well, now I'm cold, okay? If they ask me to go one mile, I'm supposed to go two. I'm not going to read those passages anymore because they cause me to do things or they challenge me to do things that I just simply don't like, right? Well, there are plenty of passages that we read that we don't like or passages that we don't know what to do with. Today's passage is not one of those. Okay, I set you up. Now, it's not one of those. This is one of those passages that has direct application in the life of everybody right here in this room. Okay? So let's begin. I dug up some statistics about Madison County, and uh, these are the latest that I could find. 
One out of three people employed in Huntsville is employed in a professional, scientific, or technical service. One out of three. One out of 14 people in Huntsville is employed in architectural or engineering occupations. I would have thought it'd be much higher than one out of 14 engineers. Okay? Uh, one out of 16 in Huntsville is employed in computer and mathematical occupations. Now, what are the educational demographics here in Huntsville, in Madison County? In the Huntsville metropolitan area, 21% of the population over 25 has a bachelor's degree. 15% have obtained master's degree. 1.2% over the age of 25 have doctorates. According to the uh, 2009 figures, which were the last ones I could find, uh, Alabama gave out a total of 828 doctorates in the field of science and engineering, 2009. The Huntsville metropolitan area ranks high in the terms of educational attainment of its population. In fact, there are only really a few areas of the country that have a higher per capita number of PhDs. Washington, D.C., which is no surprise. There are a lot of people up there uh, in that. And some of the more scientific or technical university towns have a higher percentage than us. And I do recall some figure that said at one time Madison County did have the highest number of PhDs per capita in the country. Now, we still have a lot of high number of technical degrees. There are not a lot of basket-weaving PhDs in Huntsville, okay? There's not. We are a pretty smart town. Now, we run the gamut here in this church, as an example, all the way from uh, high school graduates to doctor and postdoctoral work. So we are a pretty diverse crowd here. Uh, but Huntsville, in general, is, is pretty smart. Now, why is this important? Now we're going to read from Acts chapter 17, and I'll begin in verse 16. Paul is at the academic center of the world. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him into the Areopagus, that would be Mars Hill, if, you, if your translation might say that, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Okay, this wasn't just gossip. They were working on philosophy here and trying to understand the world and, and, and what was right and wrong. Verse 22. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. And said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in the temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives 
to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, literally raise their lip and go, <laughs> that's silly. But others said, we shall, reign, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, some among whom also was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So this is God's inspired word for us today. So Paul has entered the academic center of the first century, Athens. Now, the history of Athens goes back thousands of years, and some think it may be the oldest inhabited city uh, within in the world on record. Its philosophical point of view laid the basis for Western democracies. Uh, its history consisted of advanced military uh, conquest, advanced philosophic thought, wide-ranging influence, immense learning, and with all of this came an immense pride as well. In the second century BC, Athens was conquered by the Romans, and at this point, Athens was considered the cultural center of the world. But the Romans didn't particularly like that. They looked upon the uh, Athenians with some suspicion. Naturally, they liked their Roman culture better than the Athenian culture or the Greek culture. And they had a real distaste for philosophy in general. Uh, Athens was a city of philosophers. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Pericles, Sophocles, all these guys, many others... It was a center of music and theater and ethics and medicine. They thought highly of themselves. They thought that their intellectual and cultural prowess made them better than everybody else. The glory days of Athens had been really about 400 years before Paul arrives. So when Paul arrives, there are two rival schools of philosophy that were dominant in Athens at this time. You had the Epicureans and the Stoics, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans stem from the teaching of Epicurus, Epicurus, who lived in about 340 to 270 B.C. Epicurus taught that pleasure is the chief goal in life. Pleasure is the chief goal in life. Especially the, and this is a, a the quote from his, his philosophy, the intellectual serenity that is achieved by overcoming the disturbing passions and superstitious fears, especially the fear of death. He was a materialist. He was a materialist and taught, that, uh, belie taught believing that at death a person ceased to be and there is no afterlife. So eat, live, and let's party. That was probably the philosophy of the Epicureans. Uh, he believed in the gods but taught that they really had no impact in this world, much like a deist. 
You know, the gods got the thing started, and then they stepped back and had no influence. So you might as well live as if there are no gods in general. Today, we would say that the Epicureans were hedonists. Hedonists, okay? They would find the concept of the resurrection laughable. They would be part of that crowd that was down here sneering at Paul and his discussion of anything dealing with life after death. So those were the Epicureans, stemmed from... Epicurus. The Stoics followed the teachings of Zeno, and he taught basically the opposite of what the Epicureans taught, um, that good lies in the soul itself. So the Stoics practiced wisdom and restraint. The Epicureans were all out hedonists, and the Stoics were wisdom and restraint. It is this wisdom and restraint that delivers a person from his passions and desires of ordinary life. And the Stoics tried to live in harmony with the world and put a great emphasis on man's rational being and his rational ability to figure self out, fig- figure stuff out and be self-sufficient in this world. It was obedience to duty and principle that pervaded all that they did. Because of their belief in kind of a cyclical history, they saw the world as as coming to a head and then uh, breaking down totally and then everything would be in a sense almost reincarnated and born again and they would start once more. So when they come again to Paul's teachings of the resurrection, they also would have sneered at Paul and laughed at him because they had no concept and no belief in the resurrection. They were pantheistic. God is the world soul. It is everything here. So these two schools of philosophy were Paul's main audience for his sermon at Athens. And Paul has quite a task in front of him to communicate the gospel effectively to these people who were so proud of their intellect, who were so bright and spent all their time working on those things. So how do you present the gospel to people who don't believe in resurrection, who have never even heard of the stuff in the Old Testament? Remember, he starts in the synagogue, and after the synagogue, he goes to the rest of the people in the city. And they have no background in Scripture. So how do you present the gospel to somebody who has no background in Scripture? If you said the word Jesus to him, or to this person, or Jesus Christ, the only way that they may have heard that in today's culture may have been in in swearing. Okay? Or if you talked about salvation, they may have no concept of salvation. But they can talk to you about the meaning of life philosophically. And they're ready to argue with you about all these these great nebulous thoughts out here that they're very good at, but they have no understanding of the true and living God. And that is the crowd that Paul is facing and going to communicate the gospel to. So Paul was at Athens, not by his plan, Uh, We skipped over a portion where he went to Berea, and he got run out of Berea. uh, And he's kind of fleeing for his life, so he is waiting for Silas and Timothy to come down and join him here at Athens. And he gets there, and he walks around the city. And he is looking, and and the the, kind of the the quip on Athens was, you are more likely to meet a god than a man in Athens. At this time, there were some 30,000 idols in the city but only 10,000 people. 30,000 idols, but only 10,000 people when Paul visited there. 
So what he saw, despite all of this learning and all of this great intellectual power, is that they were a bunch of stupid idol worshipers. And they didn't even know it. It was like the guy we quoted out of Isaiah. He doesn't know that it's just a tree. He thinks it's his God. They didn't know that these were statues. They didn't know that they were chunks of wood and stone and metal. They thought they were gods that should be worshipped. John Calvin has a famous line from his Institutes. Man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols. We're always making idols. We're always ready to worship something other than the true God. Other than the true God. And nowhere is this seen more clearly than here in Athens. Now Paul, who's no intellectual slouch, Paul is is very bright. In fact, Paul Paul is the, the top of the pile in his field, so to speak. He comes here and he must communicate the true God to these intellectuals who are going to scoff at him. Well, the Athenians, with 30,000 gods, you can imagine, they're always open for new gods. But they had this idea that they were also the gatekeepers of what was a true god and what was a fake god. And they didn't want to let the fake gods in because they might corrupt their ethics. Now, now think about that for a moment and let's, let's make a little tangent. They didn't want this fake God that Paul was going to present to them to come into their belief system lest this true God corrupt their ethics. Now, do we ever find that, that perhaps that's the way it is with Christianity in a pagan society? That we can't let Christianity in because that stuff might corrupt us. And how would it corrupt us? Well, you know, Christians can be so narrow about right and wrong and truth and untruth and, and how we should live and how we shouldn't live. And, 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 you know, we can't have that kind of view in our society. There are some academics, you know, that say Christianity is dangerous. It is like a virus that needs to be eradicated from society because of the danger of infecting us with this belief of one true God. This is what Paul is facing here at Athens. So they brought him into the uh, Areopagus, Areopagus, Mars Hill. This is the place where they all hung out and had these intellectual discussions. Now look at verse 22. They had these intellectual discussions, and Paul sees. It says Paul sees. He perceives or he, or he understands that they are what? Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe, I perceive that you are very religious in all aspects. I want to tell you that I am very religious about walking my dog. That will not get me to heaven. Gets me on the good side and my good, good graces with my dog, but being religious does not get you anywhere. You might be religious about a lot of things, but the way that you maybe even... I'm religious in how I attend church. That does not make you a believer. I'm religious about how I go along about these things in my life. That does not make you a believer. So Paul is being, he's trying to say something good to build a bridge so that he can communicate the truth to them. He is trying to say and observe something that that might put them at ease so that Paul is not viewed as the enemy with this foreign God. So he says, you're very religious. Now notice that Paul did not attack their idolatry. He doesn't say how stupid they are to worship these pieces of stone and wood. 
He doesn't say that. He doesn't attack their self-smugness and the fact that he thinks that they think they're so smart and have it all together as intellectuals. But since none of them had an idea of the Bible, and Paul has to come at them from this angle, he starts with God's self-revelation in creation. Okay, now you remember in uh, Romans chapter 1, it talks about looking out into the created world and man is what? Without excuse. If you, can't, if you look at the world around us, you must come to the conclusion that there is God. Just from the created order. Now, verse 23. He says, Ah, you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. Why do you think they would have an, an altar to the unknown God? Just to cover the basis, in case we miss somebody, okay? Just in case that there's a God out there, of the 30,000 idols we have in Athens, if there's 30,000 and one gods, we don't want to miss him. So this is the catch-all to those, the catch-all to those. Uh, we, don't, uh, like, we can just assume that that's where it came from. They wanted to cover all their bases. But for Paul, this is the point of contact. This is the bridge that he needs to begin his presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He picks up on this well-known fact in their culture and turns it to his advantage. In fact, he says, you have to admit that you do not know this God. Let me tell you about this God. Let me tell you about the one true living God. So he establishes this common point with them and says, him you ignorantly worship, I will declare to you on this day. Now, Paul's not advocating it's okay to to worship idols, he is just using this part of their culture to make the jump to the gospel presentation. Okay? Now, Paul is on a collision course with the major philosophies of the day, but there's no way to do it. Remember, the gospel does what? It divides. The gospel divides because there's right and there's wrong. And if you're going to if you're going to cling to the gospel, if you're going to really believe in that, you will alienate others because they will not understand it. They will not like it and they will not understand it. But for Paul, this is his hook, his jumping off point. Now, when I was in college, I learned a method of teaching. It was called hook, book, look, took. Hook, book, look, took. Okay? And you hooked them. It sounds simple, doesn't it? You hook them. Let me illustrate. I was in Youth for Christ. We had a game. It was the egg game. We, had, we used a lot of eggs working with teenagers. And I would pick four guys from, from the room, and I would have four eggs in a carton here. And I would open the carton, and I would hold them up for the crowd, and I'd say, at least one of these eggs is raw. And then I would ask the guys to pick a helper, a female helper, and then they would come up and examine the eggs and choose an egg that they wanted, and it would be their own. And I would take the egg, and the girl would hold out her hand, and I would place it in her hand, and she would hold it. The guy would sit down in the chair, and we'd put a little uh, barber's thing on him or something, and everybody would count down, five, four, three, two, one, and the girl would take the egg and smash it on his head. And if it was hard-boiled, well, he just got a knot on his head. Uh, there was one girl just about knocked out this guy because she said, well, I, I didn't know, I didn't want it not to break if it was raw. So hit him, 
but every you know one of the eggs was going to be raw. So we'd count down on all of them, and it would hit, and it would splatter everywhere, and everybody would just you know laugh and have a great time. And then we would—that's the hook. Then we would discuss about why they chose that egg. Was there something about that egg? Did it have a look to it? Did you get some vibe from it? Did you uh, pray and ask the Lord's intervention so that you would get the hard-boiled egg and not the raw egg? What was your decision-making process in choosing that egg? So the whole point of it is decision-making process. So we are going to that night. It was a decision for Christ. That's where we were going. But it started with the hook, eggs. Okay, so that's how you progressed. This is Paul's hook. Okay, he starts with this altar to the unknown God, and he says, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about this. He doesn't start with an argument, the five arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological and ontological. He doesn't start there. He says, you are surrounded by the revelation of God in the created order. He is all around you. He speaks of the creator and the fact that they are creatures made by him. Every atom, every molecule is made by our heavenly father. Now, think about the world around us. Uh, We're probably all believers in here, but, but contemplate this. Is there anything in the created world that speaks to atheism? That speaks to the fact that there is no God? Look at the complexity of the human person. Look at the complexity of the world around us. Look at how this world hangs in space and turns at just the right right speed, goes around the sun at just the right speed and just the right distance. You're going to say that that does not argue for a purpose in our world and a purpose in our created order? All of the created order reflects the being of God. So, So Paul says, look around. What you see are the autographs of a personal God. He is not up there, distant from us. He is right here and desires a relationship with us. Now, look at verse 28. Paul quotes here two of their philosophers that they would know. Two of their philosophers that they would know. Uh, Eretus and Epimenides. Eretus and Epimenides. Now, um, you, I may have told you this before, but I learned my philosophers from a, a, a little Italian tailor that I, that I had back in Pennsylvania. And, uh, uh, you know, one day, I, his name was Epi, and I, and I took a pair of pants that I'd caught on a nail to, to the tailor, and I held him up, and he says, Randy. I says, yeah. He says, uh, Euripides? And I says, yeah. He says, Epimenides. Okay. <laughs> See, Euripides and Epimenides, they were philosophers. Okay. All right. (laughs) He says, he quotes these guys and says, In him we live and move and have our being. That's philosophers not talking about God. But Paul is using the words of one of their philosophers that they would know to head off to the Lord. For indeed, we are his offspring. In their context, these statements didn't, didn't have any Christian Christian power behind him. But it was a Stoic's statement of the eminence of God. Remember, God was not personal. He was up there, just distant, watching over them. He says, no, in him we live and move and have our being. We are created by him. All things were created by and through him. He doesn't say this, but this is what he means. And then he says, we are his offspring, his children. He is not far from us. Paul uses these two 
philosophical snippets as stepping stones to get the opportunity to be heard of the things of Christ. It would be like walking in to a conference on genetics. Now, genetics and I are far apart, but it would be something like this. You're the speaker, and you want to figure out how to communicate the gospel to this group of geneticists. So you stand up and begin your presentation by um, the complexities of the DNA and in a double-stranded form with the nucleotides on each strand being complementary, each strand can act as a template for creating a new partner strand. Thereby, the sequence of nucleotides in the gene is translated by cells to produce a chain of amino acids, creating proteins. The order of amino acids in a protein corresponds to the order of nucleotides in the gene. This relationship between nucleotide sequence and amino acid sequence is the genetic code. Now, if you said that to me, my eyes have glazed over. But if you're giving a presentation to the geneticist, they're on the edge of their seat. They're saying, this guy knows what he's talking about. And from there, you can talk about the created order and how these things are so particular and so minute that they scream out for a God who has created them. This is basically what Paul is doing here. So he is in the cultural and intellectual center of the world. He says, you believe this. Let me show you now the fulfillment of your belief. Blaise Pascal said, we are created with a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And it is, we are only satisfied when our Lord fills it. All right. How do we share the gospel with an intellectual? Okay. You find common ground. You find something that, that they can latch into, and then you go to the Lord. Let me give you a couple examples of how Paul does it here. Paul points the Athenians, the intellectuals, to the supremacy of God as the creator and the Lord of heaven and earth. He shows God's sovereignty over men. He shows it over nations over, and man's utter dependence for life and breath and all things. His dependence is upon the Lord. Paul begins at the beginning. It's the God who, God who made all things. All things are here by his hands, nor is he served by human hands, as if he was a God who needed anything. Okay, look at verse 24 and 25. Having received such a command through them, I'm sorry, chapter 17, 24 and 25, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands. It's not as if this God who is true, you can make an idol for. You can't contain him in a building or anything like that. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. This is the God that you're worshiping. This unknown God, he is the real God. He is the real one. God made us. We can't make God. Although in our society so often we, there's, there's the, the view that in the beginning God made us and then man has made us in his image and now man has returned the favor that we make God in our image. There's no room for that in our Heavenly Father. He alone is the inescapable fact of existence. He created the universe. He is Lord of it. To think that you could make a temple or some graven image that would contain him is simply, what did we say earlier? Stupid. Simply stupid. Secondly, intellectuals need to realize that they really have nothing to offer to God. 
They have nothing to offer to God. The pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of, of this, this philosophy, there's nothing wrong with that. But to think that that satisfies or to think that that will get us where we need to be or to think that God has a use for my, uh, 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 he can't live without my intellect and my opinion of him is simply crazy. He graciously gives his redeemed children the privilege of serving him. But it's not as, like, it's not as if he couldn't do without us. Remember, he has created us for his purposes. He is not here for our purposes. Thirdly, intellectuals also need to realize that God is sovereignly active in determining the rise and fall of everything. The rise and fall of individuals, the rise and fall of nations. Verse 26. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. Now, who determined the boundaries of the state of Alabama? Now, in our humanists, we think, well, some surveyor, you know, in, in 1802 or something like that, created the boundaries. That's not what Scripture says. It's the Lord that determines the boundaries. In his sovereign plan, he works these things out. Paul's confronting the deism of the Epicureans here, the, the idea that God is not involved. He says he is personal and active in our lives and determines all things. Determines all things. This last two verses here, 27 and 28 for us. They should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him, find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. It's not that in our own fallen nature we can pursue God and find him. He comes and finds us. He comes and begins to open our eyes to the truth of the things of Jesus Christ. And then he calls us and draws men and women unto himself. So rather, Paul is showing that even though men are in fact dependent on God for everything, and even though God has graciously given men life and breath in all things, we ignore God. We go our own way. And he's challenging them here to say, you have abandoned the one true God. Now is the day to seek him and find him. The path of intellectual pursuit and selfishness Intellectual pursuit's not bad. I like, you know, all those letters after my name. I think that's cool. But it's not the end all. It doesn't get you to heaven. The real intellectual comes to one conclusion, that there is one God and he has one son and his name is Jesus the Christ. So let's pray. Lord, Paul, who's very bright, goes to the center of the intellectual world of his day with the gospel. And those who had no basis and no understanding and no background in the things of the Old Testament, he points to the world around them and says, who created this? This is made by the one true God that you don't really understand. So I am here to tell you and to show you that he is real and he is personal. And he calls men and women into a relationship with himself. In fact, Lord, 
We, we knew before we were believers, if we admitted to ourselves, there were nights where we laid in bed in the dark and, and there was no other sound except what was going through our heads and there was a hole in our lives, something that was empty. And we did not understand what it was. There was a longing in our heart, and that longing can only be filled by the one who has created us, the one who loves us, the one who has given his life for us, by Jesus the Christ. Fix in our minds, Lord, that it is not anti-intellectual to believe these things, but the real intellectual pursues you. The real intellectual believes and lives without fear and lives in confidence for your work and your plan in their lives. Fix this in our hearts today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.